Howdy, welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I am your host, Jake McAtee, and this week I had the privilege of interviewing Pastor Douglas Wilson about his book, Angels in the Architecture, A Protestant Vision for Middle Earth, co-written by Douglas Jones. This book sketches a vision of medieval Protestantism as a personal and cultural vision that embraces the fullness of Christian truth, beauty, and goodness. You can find Angels in the Architecture now on audio at mycanonplus.com. You can buy the book at canonpress.com. Without further ado, meet Pastor Douglas Wilson. All right, now welcoming on special guest, Pastor Wilson. Thank you so much for giving us your time. Hiya. How are you? Good. Good. I wanted to talk to you about a book that just made it into audio. Uh, you can go find it at mycanonplus.com. It is your book, Angels in the Architecture, a Protestant, a, a Protestant, sorry, a Middle Earth, what is it? My bad. (laughs) (laughs) How am I supposed to know that? (laughs) Ended up on the other side of the The room. Protestant vision for Middle Earth. A Protestant vision for Middle Earth. Or something like that. Um, Do you mind telling us? So this was a co-authored project. Do you mind telling us what the thesis is there? So um, I wrote it together with a colleague, Doug Jones, Douglas Jones. And um, this was, man, probably a couple of decades ago. Yeah. Um, so 20 years older or so. 1998. 1998. It was a different world. Back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Different, well, different world in some respects. Uh, one of the things we could see in the 90s that something special was brewing uh, in Moscow. There was a distinct, okay. um, there was a distinctive flavor. There was something happening here that was, um, to, to harken back to an old ad campaign, not your father's Oldsmobile. Um, okay. It was it was evangelical and it was reformed, um, but there was something different. Right. And and we were in the very early stages of the community starting to get lift off, if you um, and take shape. Right. And we wanted to articulate what we both what we thought that shape was. And what we wanted that shape to continue to be. Okay. So we it was sort of descriptive and prescriptive at the same time. Right. So, and what we wanted was a uh, a Protestant vision that uh, was decidedly Protestant, but that didn't act as though the church it, that didn't act as though Pentecost happened in fifteen seventeen. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, the the church was reformed uh as the as the quip goes when when a roman catholic asks a protestant where was your church before the reformation the the magisterial protestant answer would be where was your face before you washed it yes so, so um the church was there uh boniface is my brother um uh, augustine's my brother part of the part of the church part of a small c catholic yep tradition. So you have Boethius as much as correct anyone right. else. Right. For good and ill. Yes. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, in, in other words, the, the whole church is um, the inheritance. Uh, church history is the inheritance of uh, the right kind of Protestantism. Okay. So um, an American evangelicalism 
sometimes had an even more truncated view where Pentecost happened in 1776. Okay. And so what we wanted to do was articulate a full-orbed Kuyperian worldview vision of uh, what we wanted uh, to see take shape here and to talk about different aspects of that, um, the, the family and, and feasting and, and uh, history and, and so on. Yep. I remember I read it in college and it, I still think, uh, so I told you, I, I interviewed Dr. Jason Baxter on the medieval mind of yes. Lewis and, and for the introduction of that episode, I, uh, pr- from the Canon side of things, I promoted angels in the architecture. Um, and I called it probably one of the more underrated books at Canon. I think it's maybe my favorite book at Canon. And I, I think because it hit me, I'd never read anything like it. So I wanted to ask you about this. I think if you were to tell me this book is about living in community for, for you know, a church community, uh, that, that worships God every Sunday, and then they live it out Monday through Saturday. I would have been looking for something closer to your book, Gashmu Sayeth It. Right. Or, you know, something, you know, I can imagine something coming out of life where a crossway, very much similar, like a, that kind of book. Right. right. How, how would you distinguish Gashmu Sayeth It and Angels in the Architecture? Uh, Angels in the Architecture is more aware of how this has been done before. Okay. Okay. Uh, Gashmu saith it is more like, here's a starter kit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. If, if, if you have a vision for Christians living together and building community and so forth, it's the sort of thing that would uh, uh, be more relevant to maybe a first century Christian where, where they're, they're doing it for the first time, to- for doing it for the first time. Angels in the architecture is more aware of the fact that what we're doing is trying to trying to rebuild Christendom 2.0. Okay. It's a, it's a reboot. Okay. So, um, uh, angels in the architecture is much more historically situated, historically aware, um, uh, more retrospective. Okay. Now, uh, so your task is essentially pointing out to the fish here. This is the water you live in. I, there have been better water before. Right. Um, I assume you went on a very similar journey yourself as one of the authors of the book. Right. Can you talk about maybe in particular the the lane of medievalism? Right. What was your journey like that? Was it similar to the post mill slide? Was it very fun? Was it, it Well, it was um it, it was fun, but it was not um startling the way the post mill thing was. Okay. Uh, there was a time in my conscious life when I didn't know what post-millennial thinking was. I, did, I was not aware of that whole thing. And then I was introduced to that way of thinking, and here's how, here's how you can read the scripture that way. So that was exhilarating and fun. But I, um, I grew up, well, I, in one of my books on Narnia, I forget where I say this, but I, I was surprised that I kind of grew up in Narnia. Okay. Right. Um, I was, my dad began reading, um, the first Narnia book to us kids when I was five, which would have been 1958. And so the books, the Narnia books were not necessarily still coming out, but they were hot. They were still fresh. Yep. Right. Um, the Narnia books were not what the Narnia books are now. 
the Narnia books now are an institution. They they, they are a mega corporation. <laughs> right. But at the, but, but at the but at the time, yeah. uh, they were they were just these new books that fresh books that were uh, coming out or had recently come out, and I read and reread and reread those books growing up, and Lewis's medieval vision permeates those books, and 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 then years later, I discovered uh, through reading Ward's Planet Narnia just how all pervasive that medieval vision was and then even more than you would have thought so um in one sense you know prince caspian dresses like a medieval prince and he lives in a castle like a medieval prince and he fights right. like a medieval prince all those things are sort of obvious and on the surface but there's a there's a medieval cosmological set of assumptions that that is pervasive in narnia so uh, when I when I later when I read Lewis's discarded image okay. about the cosmology of the me medieval world, and I started uh, recognizing that Lewis was far more invested in restoring far more of that medieval world and life vision than I'd initially assumed. This is not a mere hobby. It's not a side thing. He's, he's not stamp collecting here. He's it it pervades the Ransom trilogy. He is urging it in he describes himself somewhere as uh, an old western man uh he so he's a a relic or a dinosaur yep. in his inaugural address at cambridge he describes himself as a as this dinosaur well for for me lewis wasn't a dinosaur at all he was basically uh after my dad after the um my uh, living mentors he was the mentor for me growing up and he instructed me thoroughly in this medieval way of thinking. So when I came, when I came to the point where I started um, connecting the dots in other ways, you know, uh, in a Kuyperian worldview sure. uh, way, uh, that medievalism was part and parcel, was very much part of the whole thing. Okay, so you were essentially backdoored, backdoor, and probably backdoor. had been living in it longer than you intellectually knew. Uh, far more, uh, far longer than I knew, and far more influenced by it than I actually knew. And then later, when I when I started reading, uh, you know, started reading the early fathers and started reading, you know, filling in my knowledge of these things, I I was able to put the things I learned or put all those books on the shelves that Lewis had built for me. Right. So is there a, um, so I, does Lewis's example in the discarded image comes to mind, but for you, is there a litmus test that you like to provide? Say if, if you were speaking to a big youth group and you wanted to know, are you a modernist or not? Right. Is there a litmus test you would provide? How, how do we, how do you shock us into knowing like, Oh no, I am one. <laughs> so, um, yeah, here's a here's a quick and easy litmus test. Hey, kids, have any of you ever seen an angel? <laughs> uh, uh -huh. If they say no, you know we're not charismatics. Yeah. You know, we're, no, we're evangelicals or we're or we're reformed. No, no. Uh, anyone who says reflexively, instinctively, no, I've never seen an angel, is a modernist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how, how so? 
uh, I would say, you've never looked at the night sky? Never seen a star? Yeah. Right? <laughs> and and so uh, this, is what, this is how Lewis, I think, approaches it, where he um, talks about walking out in... in um, there's a, a collection of essays that uh, is published called Studies in Medieval and Renaissance Literature. Okay. And... There's an essay in that book, and I have the name of that essay escapes me right now, Thought and Imagination in the Middle Ages. Yes, yep. Thought and Imagination in the Middle Ages. Um, that is basically an essay-length synopsis of the discarded image. Okay. okay, so you can read the book, The Discarded Image, in which you will discover how vastly learned Lewis was. Um, and then you can get the sort of the, the quick and dirty um, version of that in Thought and Imagination in the Middle Ages. And in that essay, he talks about uh, walking out on a night sky, assuming the medieval vision um, was true, and spend a half an hour looking at the night sky. Uh, that, that, I think, sums up the whole thing. So a modernist feels like, uh, of course, when you look at a night sky, what you're seeing with your eyeballs is the, a medieval man and a modern man see the same thing. You see black with little white specks. That's what, right. that's what you see. We all see the same thing. But we are catechized or schooled by Star Trek, Star Wars, other space operas, yep. that sort of thing, where we feel like we're, our mental image is we're standing on an island looking out over an ocean. And we call our spaceships ships. Yep. It's a it's an oceanic metaphor. So we think that, um, and so the whole Starship Enterprise coming land, making landfall at another island, and you get the rowboat and go ashore and see what the natives are up to. Uh, that's the framework for understanding the cosmos. Yep. Okay. As opposed to the medieval um, understanding, which is you are looking at an artifact and you're not looking out over the ocean. You're looking in, in one sense up, like you're looking up the side of a skyscraper or you're looking in, you're out, you're in the outskirts and you're looking into the, into the palace with the ballroom and the, the, the great dance where the Lords and ladies are and you're excluded somehow. So if you have all those sensations, you're medieval. If you have the uh, the technocratic science fiction right uh, approach, then you're a modernist. There, there's been a recent, maybe in the last decade, run of movies in space. You know where Sandra Bullock. I might be mixing them up, but where Sandra Bullock watches George Clooney, sort of, uh, he, he, they they got in an accident. George Clooney is sort of floating, mm -hmm. and it's absolutely, utterly terrifying and cold and mm -hmm. quiet. And, and anyway, it, it was always like a perfect example, I always thought, of right. like, this is exactly right. what moderns think of it. Right. They think of the cosmos as a huge vacuum of black, a huge black vacuum punctuated here and there with flaming gas and dead rock. And that's the, that's the cosmos. But uh, for the Christian, well, for the medieval mindset, which is far more Christian biblical than the modern mindset. Uh, 
you when you're looking at the night sky, you're looking at at a party. You're looking at something that is teeming with life. So here's another uh, litmus test. If someone says, "Do you believe in extraterrestrial uh, life? Do you believe? Do you believe in aliens?" And I say, "Sure, sure, I do." There's cherubim and there's seraphim and there's archangels and there's angels and there's thrones and there's dominions and powers and principalities. Oh, come on. Yeah, come on. You know what I mean? Uh, no, I don't know what you mean. Yeah, well, for many Christians, they've got this category of, okay, yeah, there's these angel things, but we don't have a place for them really. And then we've got this cosmos that that we've been taught by our movies to believe exists. Right. And and then what Christians do is they uh, many modern Christians think that they live in a in the same cosmos that Christopher Hitchens lived in. Only we're Christians. And so there's God at the top and a, and a handful of angels up there. But everything else from from God down to us is just this empty cosmos that we're all rattling around in. Um, and so they they assume that we are guided by, manipulated by natural laws. Put, you know, it's just all atoms banging around, right? Instead of seeing the cosmos as a personal place, yes. So and it, impersonal beforehand, impersonal. Yeah. It's just sort of raw energy coming at you, right? And the Christian view is not necessarily not animistic, where where you don't say that every rock is personal sure but the world is uh saturated with personality god's personality and all sorts of intermediate uh, personalities including our own so the cosmos is teeming with sentient life some of the particulars i want to get into but i we brought up this book came about in 1998 it's when it came off the press so i imagine maybe a year or yeah. longer beforehand this was being written. Right. How would you situate it? Maybe, maybe you wouldn't change it at all, but I'm curious if they were to come out in 2023. Right. Would you address or come at anything differently? Yeah, I, I would have a few yeah buts. Uh, I, on the whole, I think that the book has uh, aged well. Okay. Okay. Uh, I think the book has aged well. And... Um, but there, there are a few yebuts that okay. I would, I would, uh, I'd want to either supplement or have extra paragraphs or qualify a few things. Okay. And um, as it happens, it's um, they largely are in the chapters my co-author J Doug Jones okay. um, uh, contributed. I would want th there's a chapter on the nominalist realist debate. Okay. That I would want to qualify more. Uh, readily in that chapter, the nominalists are the unqualified good guys, and the, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, you seek to qualify that. I'd seek to qualify that because I believe, and, and at the time, I had a discussion with Doug at at the time when he was writing that chapter. Um, William of Ockham was sort of introduced uh, the modern version of uh, nominalism, and Doug was treating him as the, the unqualified good guy. Uh, and this is a great step forward. And I'm um, now, so at the time I was willing to be a yeah, but nominalist. Okay. And I was, okay, William of Ockham came from the Augustinian tradition. And so, and so the problem of nominalism is that 
if if you look away for two seconds, the whole thing flies apart. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and fragments. Yep. Okay. And and I was willing to be a yeah, but okay, I'm a yeah, but nominalist in that in the Augustinian tradition, the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, the the plan of God is the glue that holds everything together. Yeah. Okay. Um, since that time, I've I'm uh, gotten to the place where I would call myself. I don't know what Doug would say about himself, but I would call myself a yeah, but realist. Okay. So, so I think qualifications have to be made both ways. Okay. Right. Sure. Um, but I'm. Um, uh, could you could you give us a quick so for anyone that totally outside of that discussion a quick primer on what exactly is at stake. What, what are we, what the heck are we talking about? <laughs> oh, it's always a plus. If you want people to listen to you talking That's on, right. your, on your talk show. I also think I remember, didn't he Michael Jones throw William of Ockham at you once where he was just like, wasn't that your fault? Or, or maybe you threw it back at him. I don't remember which yeah, one, it was, but it was yeah, very funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I actually, I forget, but um, if you if you're familiar with it, look up the the painting, the School of Athens uh, by Raphael. Okay. And uh, in that painting, uh, Plato and Aristotle are walking toward the painter, walking toward the camera. It wasn't okay. a camera, but they're walking toward the observer. And Socrates is sort of sprawled on the steps there, and Plato is pointing up, and Aristotle is pointing his fingers splayed out down, and. Plato was the realist. Uh, if we were, I'm using um, terms anachronistically here because it's not quite, it doesn't quite fit. But um, the ancient philosophers asked questions like, what makes a table a table? What makes a chair a chair? And of course, the answer would be tableness or chairness. And Plato postulated a realm of the forms. Okay, there's a there's a place of the forms. It's where, up there, probably. Yeah, up there, pointing up. Yep. Um, where the the ultimate table is, and all tables down here are what they are because they somehow partake of that tableness, that that uh, that ultimate real table, um, and then um, and chairs the same, and um, all your definitions are are contained in the realm of the forms. So Plato is appealing to that, that and that's realism. Um, nominalism uh, is what what Aristotle said is that the form of tableness is within each table, okay? Um, and then nominalism would be maybe going a, a little bit beyond that, where William of Ockham, nominalism comes from the Latin nomen, meaning na uh, word for name. Okay. So things are what they are because they're named as what they what they are. So, um, so you attach labels, and the, the, it's it, down here. It's radic It's all down here. There's no up there form, right. Corresponding, right? There's no ultimate definition. Cool. Now, a, a Christian realist like C.S. Lewis was would say basically the realm of the forms is is in the mind of God. It's not an independent realm. A table is what God thinks it is. Okay. Okay. Yep. Um, a chair is what God thinks it is. And I'm I'm far more uh, uh, persuaded by and sympathetic to the realistic the realism arguments, acknowledging that there are some important yeah, but you don't want everything to get swallowed up uh, in the ultimate realm. But Richard Weaver, in his great book, great great book, 
um, ideas have consequences. He he goes traces the modern ills back to the, that medieval debate. Interesting. In which um, William of Ockham was the bad guy. <laughs> okay. Okay. So all of our woes uh, come from the fact that we um, accommodated nominalism more than we we should have. Now I think uh, so. All of the, so basically, I was I would want that chapter to be more carefully written with more yebuts, you know, and and perhaps um, not take a stand on nominalism, realism, but just say, here are the issues. Okay. And this, these are the things that we must preserve. So I wanted, um, the thing I want to preserve most of all is a transcendent grounding for things cohering here. Okay. So why, why can we have a Christian worldview here? And I think there, I think there has to be some sort of realistic accommodation in order to have that. So that'd be one, um, one chapter, another chapter, this would be not quite as pressing, uh, would be, I'd want some more qualifications in the chapter on agrarianism, okay. um, where the, uh, um, the Bible begins in a garden and it ends in a garden city. And I'd want more emphasis on the goodness of the city. Okay. Right. Um, now, it's a fallen world and lots of rank things happen in cities. But as I, my grandma was from a small town in uh, Nebraska, Genoa, Nebraska. And I was there one time family reunion visiting her. And I saw a bumper sticker in Genoa, Nebraska that said, you don't see much in a small town, but what you hear makes up for it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so um, people are sinners everywhere Every, yeah. in, in, in in the country and in the city, people are sinners, and what happens in the city is it gets concentrated, and you can and you oh my goodness, it's hard to ignore. Right. Uh, but I I would want m more of a of an emphasis on the city and the country in harmony, okay. th than sort of choosing sides. Right. Right. Now, so those are updates within the book where you, you'd say like, over time, this is what I would have the book updated on. But I'm curious, even in reference to like the world of 2023 compared mm -hmm. to 1998, mm -hmm. would you start modern 2023 Christians on this journey? Would you uh, make any adjustments on where to start them or anything of that nature? No, I, th I think that the book, I think the, the book remains a good introduction okay. to to a lot of the basics, not all of the basics. So for example, in the late nineties, who would have anticipated that, that we would have, we could have used a chapter on what is a woman. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Right. So, um, that we were still taking a number of things for granted that we could share with, uh, non-believers. So naive. And, and, um, and that's just not the, it was just not the case anymore. So if you, if you wanted to give the book cold to someone who let's say grew up in this America and graduated from high school in 2023, yeah. 20, well, they can't have done it yet because 2022, but if, if, if they, um, if they're just now graduated from high school, they're going to go off to college and they say, get me oriented to, um, I think that there are a few things that we would have to um, address explicitly. Okay. Um, 
identity being one, you know, human identity being one of them, sexual identity, but fundamentally identity being uh, one of them. And another would be, would be um, the, the world of the web, the internet, the mm. interconnectedness of everything, you know, why, uh, why we don't think the singularity is going to happen. But, okay. we, but we would have to talk about it. Sure. Um, one thing that came as a surprise as I re-looked at it, um, we mentioned it's co-authored, but your first chapter, I don't think it's the first chapter, but your first chapter is on recovering beauty. Mm-hmm. And it comes before acknowledging the most high. Right. What, what are you doing? You're a pastor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why is this the case? What do we? Well, you start where you are, right? Okay. Um, so, um, and and I say this, agreeing with Calvin's observation at the beginning of the Institutes: you can't know yourself without knowing God, and you can't know God without knowing yourself, right? But I think our aesthetic impoverishment okay. has been one of the principal um, tools that the devil has used to keep us from knowing ourselves and hence that keeps us from knowing God. Okay. Okay. So obviously if you're writing a systematic theology, then you, you structure things in order of importance, right? God, man, sin, salvation, revelation. You you just, you work through that. That's the flow chart. You you start with um, God and the attributes of God and the person of God and the, uh, tr- uh, triune nature of God and so on. That's what you do in a systematic theology. When you're witnessing to your next door neighbor, you start with the fact that he's in the middle of a messy divorce. Well, that's not, that's not the high point of your systematic <laughs> theology, but that's where he is. That's where he, that's where he's hurting. That's the pain that made him start thinking about this in the first place. Yep. Okay. Uh, why, why is he open to spiritual things? Well, because he's going through a messy divorce. Um, what, what is it that has, um, Christians, excuse me, your average non-Christian or your poorly taught Christian, what is it that they're starved for? Okay. I think one of the central things that they're starved for is the missing aesthetic element, the missing beauty. They've grown up in an ugly world. They've grown up in a world that doesn't value um, aesthetic achievement at all. So, how? So, tell us what what is when you say recovery of beauty? How would you even start? Because I imagine with someone, uh, let's say the future graduate in twenty twenty three would say, "Well, I have an aesthetic, and I'm sure it doesn't match yours. Uh, Here's my aesthetic. There's your aesthetic. How how would you even begin to, to talk about?" sort of an impoverished aesthetic. Yeah. So um, there's a great uh, book on architecture uh, by the name of Hale, H-A-L-E. It's called The Old Way of Seeing. Okay. The Old Way of Seeing. Uh, and it's a, it's a wonderful um, starting point for this discussion. And let's just say the ugly house that this person grew up in uh, or the ugly mall he shops in or the ugly church he went to. Um, and he's going to say, oh, you're saying you're throwing this term around ugly like it has objective meaning. Uh, and I'm saying exactly so. That's exactly my point. It, uh, beauty 
is a, an objective reality, just like truth, goodness. Truth is objective. Uh, moral goodness is objective. And aesthetic beauty is objective. Truth, goodness, and beauty. And I think that uh, for most evangelical Christians, if you say, well, if it's true on Monday that Jesus rose from the dead, then it's true on Friday. And you'd get an amen most of, you know, um, from every faithful Christian would say, yeah, that's right. If it's if it's a sin to commit adultery on Monday, it's a sin to commit it on Friday. Yeah, they're, they're not ethical relativists. Right. Um, but when I... Th- if you say that church is just plain ugly, it's mud fence, mud fence, mud fence ugly. Uh, well, who's to say? They all of a sudden Christians start talking like relativists, right? All right, who's to say what ugly is? Well, how, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, how how are you supposed to know what God thinks is beautiful? Well, He wrote a book. He he and and it doesn't give us pictures of beautiful things, but the but it gives us samples. It gives us beautiful poetry. It gives us beautiful descriptions. It gives us testimony to the fact that there is such a thing. So um, Abigail is described as a beautiful and intelligent woman uh, in Scripture. doesn't give us her SAT scores, and it doesn't give us a photo. But we know that there's such a thing as beauty and intelligence in women. That's a category because the Bible says it's a category. Uh, play uh, Psalm 33, play the Psalms skillfully. Um, well, we know there's such a thing as skillful um, handling of an instrument because the Bible says to worship God that way. So all of this to say, when someone says, well, who's to say what beautiful is? Um, I think we've just gotten lazy and we don't want to do the hard work of aesthetic study grounded in the scripture that would tell that would tell us um what the beautiful is now uh it's and it's a challenge it really is a challenging subject but i think it's an essential subject because we i think that uh relativism has flooded into the evangelical church through the relativism that we've adopted when it comes to aesthetics now jumping back to the book that i mentioned uh the old way of seeing uh if you had um take the proportion let's say you're looking at a at a building, a live public library on the East Coast, a public library, um, the and you look at the columns out front. If the columns had a ratio of ten to one, you know, one being the width and ten being the length, ten to one, you would feel like the whole thing was going to snap off. It would, right. ev- everything would look spindly, and you wouldn't feel you wouldn't have a crowd of people sitting on the front steps. Right. <laughs> uneasy. Uneasy. If you had a, the columns were three to one, one the base and three being, it would look like a public library on Jupiter, um, <laughs> where it's like squashed right. flat. But if you had a, um, if you had the ratio of seven to one, you would have the front steps covered with people having their lunch, reading books. It's a comfy human place. And that's because the ratio of the human body is seven to one. One at the base. Yeah. All right. It's a, it's a human proportion. Okay. Okay. Um, It means things. It means things. And it resonates with the way we are. All right. So that, that would be a good example of, uh, there's a a very uh, fun um, 
photo in this book, The Old Way of Seeing, where it has a picture of a beautiful tree and, it sh and a little uh, analysis of the ratios. It's a, I forget what kind of tree it is, but it's a gorgeous tree photo of it. And it shows the, how well proportioned the tree is and yeah. what, the, what those proportions are and this ratio to that ratio. Then you turn the page and there's a picture of Audrey Hepburn's face with the same proportions. Okay. Wow. And you say, okay, Audrey Hepburn is beautiful for the same reason that that tree was beautiful. There's the, yeah, and you have to stand up and you have to bow down because there's math involved. <laughs> right. Right. And then, you, and the old way of seeing is uh, like you're walking along, and uh, if you're looking at an older house, um, the golden ratio is the ratio of this, the, this digit of your finger to the next digit is something like one to 1.3 something. And then it's the same with this digit to the next one. Okay. All right. So that's the golden ratio. And so if you look at an old house, the row of windows along the bottom would be one of those proportions. And then the next row of windows up would be the other. <laughs> okay. So, so what they were doing is they were building with the human scale in mind. Okay. All right. Now today, and this, this, um, and worldview, I'm, I'm fond of saying theology comes at your fingertips and whatever, whatever it is that's coming at your fingertips is your theology. Um, if you look at it, if you walk up um, and down a modern street and you just look at the windows on the house, yep. okay, they're, they look like they've just sort of randomly placed here and there, you know, random. Yep. <laughs> okay. Now, I think that there's a rhyme and a reason to it, but I think the rhyme and reason to those windows is all internal to the house. So the old way of seeing was that you, uh, you, presented to the people on the sidewalk beauty you were loving your neighbor manners manners okay it's like going uh, people go to the supermarket now in their jammies and hair and curl curlers <laughs> sure. and they're doing so because they want they're, they're dressing for comfort but this is another inescapable concept it's not whether you dress for comfort it's whose comfort you dress for right right so when you, it used to be that you would dress up to go to the grocery store, you'd, you'd clothe yourself, comb your hair, because you were dressing for the comfort of others. Right. Okay. You mean now, dress up. You don't mean like a, I don't you're mean not a, wearing a tie to the store. I'm not, not talking about a tux. Right. But it used to be, it used to be that workmen, you know, uh, would go, um, go to work, Jack and not just white collar. Um, I'm, uh, my wife and I have enjoyed watching this re-release of All Creatures Great and Small of um, a veterinary practice in England in the thirties. Okay. Uh, James Harriet's books. It's a quite, quite a good, uh, <laughs> okay. quite, quite a good thing, but he's a vet and he's going, he's going out to deal with animals in a jacket and tie. <laughs> you think, okay. All right. Yeah. Right. So in the old, this old way of yep. seeing was, is that you were thinking of the comfort of others when they would design the front of the house, it would be for the neighbors. Right now, <laughs> um, perhaps you've seen this. Uh, it's like you build a fence around your backyard, and it used to be that you would build the fence with the the support beams on the inside of the yard, right. and the nice looking part of the fence facing your neighbors, so that the neighbors could look at the nice part. Right, 
And now people build fences with the innards on the outside and the nice part inside. So much as to say to the neighbors, screw you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So if you go into this house and you look around, I'm sure that the placement of the windows makes perfect sense for the layout of the interior interior. Um, and you, okay, here's a window. You want to see that and you, but you're, you're basically suiting yourself. Um, and the old way of seeing was aesthetic. You, you're living in community and, uh, and you're trying to love others. Right. And, And so consequently, I think that a recovery of an aesthetic sense and a recovery of a biblical, the biblical requirement to love your neighbor would result in an architectural revolution. Yeah, it, it, that book seems to me like one where the minute you read it, you're sort of ruined as you walk around, you know, new houses and everything mm-hmm. else. Now, now you're not going to be able to unsee it. Right. Um, one of the one of the last things that I wanted to bring up was the topic of poetic knowledge. Ah, yes. I think I came into contact with this. Um, I think I bought you. You you did a. I think it was a past pastors conference on poetic ministry. Yeah. Uh, do you mind, is this just mean ministry or knowledge for, you know, the creative types? <laughs> what do you mean by it? <laughs> no. Is this for the every man? Yeah, it's for every man. Okay. Because every man has a, has a, um, poetic sense and poetic sensibility, uh, to him. Okay. And, and I'll, I'll start with that. It used to be, for example, that the poet laureate, in the 19th century, the poet laureate of England would be someone like Tennyson. And everyone knew his name. And most middle-class houses had volumes of his poetry on the shelves. The poet laureate was the poet of the people. And everyone knew about him. And everyone enjoyed his poetry. They could reference him or reference a line in passing. Correct. So you would have poets like Longfellow or poets like Tennyson. Longfellow is American, but um, uh, Longfellow or Tennyson or Kipling, and they, they were popular poets, um, recognized as such, and they were they were the kind of people that could become the poet laureate. We still have poet laureates today, and virtually no one knows who they are. Right? The, the the only per, the only people who know who the poet laureate would be would be other poets because poets have poets have gotten into the bad 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 habit of writing poetry that's esoteric opaque and dark uh for other poets to puzzle over (laughs) and poet and poetry journals are for uh our insider you know our insider uh journals right now it didn't it doesn't have to be that way the human race is poetic. And now I'm talking here about poetry proper. In the chapter of po- on poetic knowledge, yep. it spreads out into epistemology and other things. Sure. But the poetry proper is um, an, an essential part of this. So when you, um, Pascal, uh, there's a place where Pascal refers to esprit de finesse, where you intuit the whole and you, you don't try to deal with it by simply uh, and taking it apart like it, like you were disassembling a lawnmower engine. Okay. So, the modern mentality wants to 
take everything apart and figure out the parts and treat it like it's a, not only a, a machine, but treat it like it's a very simple machine. Okay. Okay. Now what Pascal wanted to do is say, no, it's more complicated than that. You, you need to intuit the whole. This is an organic whole. You can't just stack up the parts and get your, um, get your person. You, you, you qualified it with organic. Right. Why, why? It, it, tell it's, me about it's organic. A, it, well, it's alive. It's, in, it's, <laughs> it's alive and interrelated. Okay. <laughs> We're almost starting to do the thing of taking it apart, but I, yeah. So, so you want to, um, uh, Wordsworth has a great phrase when he said, we murder to dissect. Okay. Um, you take the thing apart and now it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't do it anymore. Right. Now only take something apart if you're confident of getting it back together again. And there's a place, there's a place for the machinist's knowledge. Right. Where you can take it apart and you can put it back together. But you you can and you can take a lawnmower machine apart and put it back together. But you can't do that with an apple tree. Butterfly. Yeah, you can't do that with a butterfly. You you could take the butterfly apart, but you cannot reassemble it. Right? right. And and it's not because the butterfly is um disorganized. Well, no, it's far more organized. Right. Right. So the the logic of it. The logic of life, the logic of or, organic interrelationship is the kind of thing that we, we can be called upon to understand, but you have to approach it with poetic knowledge. Okay, it, it's, and that includes analysis. So uh, analysis is something that is part of the whole, but it's not the whole. So, okay. so um, let, let's, say, let's say you are a bird specialist, okay? Um, and you wanted to understand, you wanted to understand the Robin. Okay. You would do it. Poetic knowledge would understand the Robin best by bird watching, by taking photographs of Robins, by studying their migratory patterns, by watching them hunt worms on your lawn, by writing a poem about a Robin and by going to vet school and examining the skeleton of Robin, you know, that this examining the skeleton of a Robin is the an analytic part. Okay. Okay. And that can be a valuable, um, a valuable part of the whole. But if you get this mechanistic idea where you just think that every, this Robin is a machine and that's all it is, and I've memorized the names of all the bones. And so I therefore under, this understand. This is a pre-converted use of scrub. Right. Looking Cur at this. Exactly. Right. right, it's a truncated, narrow, uh, poverty-stricken uh, uh, approach. So, and you'll and you'll see that with, um, you know, they'll with MRI studies, they'll they'll show people pictures, and and then tell you what part of the brain lit up when you were, uh, okay, where you can, you might be confusing correlation and causation here, and what are you assuming about the brain and the mind? Right. Is the mind different than the brain? And Lewis's essay and transposition would come in here. Yep. Right. So, um, the, I, I, I feel that we have, um, gotten our analytic skills sophisticated to the point where they look really impressive, but there's still a, a, a tiny fraction of everything there is to know. And, and you know them 
uh, by, um, so for example, there's a great line in Lewis's uh, That Hideous Strength where Hingist, the, uh, the scientist before he's murdered, is talking with Mark Studdick and who's a sociologist. And Hingist says something like, you don't, um, you don't study men, you get to know them, which is quite different. Right. So, right. Th and that's it in a nutshell. Your list about um, the Robin, I assume there's, I'd, I, I'll go out on a limb. There's a bird watcher listening who thought Doug is exactly right on your list and then just grew very puzzled about the poem part. Right. Why would, let's say he's not written a poem, but he feels like he's got his knowledge. He knows up. his birds. He right. knows his birds. <laughs> what, what would it, he accomplish by attempting a poem about a robin? He doesn't know, does he? <laughs> <laughs> so um, there's a Browning, um, the poet Browning has a, uh, uh, a poem called Fra Lipo Lipi. And in the course of that poem, he's talking about uh, a, a, a painter, and I forget all the details, but there's a uh, sort of a competition between painters and there's one painter that sort of has the uncanny ability to capture the soul of him, even though the arm wasn't quite right. Okay. Right. There, there was something mechanically wrong with the painting, but he got it. Right? <laughs> but, but he got it. Right. And there's another, um, there's another painter whose technical proficiency is exact, but he misses, but no he misses it. Right. And the, and the question is raised by this poem, you know, why do I, pa why paint? a bowl full of apples. What's the point of a still life of a bowl full of apples? Um, and because, and, and the pragmatic approach wants to say, well, we, we weren't short on apples. We, and you can't eat the, you can't eat the painting. And what, uh, why, why paint a bowl full of apples? And the reason for it is, and this is what I think comes out of a, uh, reflection on that poem is the reason a painter paints a bowl full of apples is so that you can see the apples fresh. You, you can, a good painter uh, who, who might uh, paint a mountain that's right outside your town, or um, uh, you take a photo of something in your front yard and then you have it painted. Um, that, that is done not because you were missing that piece of your front lawn or that that vista or that that view it's so that you can capture it look at it sideways and then come back to your real view fresh better and better and see it yep right so if you if you painted a painting of a of a robin or wrote a poem about a robin and it was a good poem uh, let's say you um you gave this poem to a bird watcher who didn't feel like he had any scanning ability in this, but he, you read the poem to him and it moved him the right way. The next time he goes out bird watching, it should change what he sees. It, it almost seems, and you brought in uh, Lewis's transposition. And then I, I, I mentioned about Lewis scrub looking at the Robins. Very um, different pre pre-converted. Used, used to scrub. Sorry. What did I say? 
Lewis Cup. Lewis Cup. <laughs> That's Which, Cardinal City. Uh, yeah. Well, no, actually, it might be. A, <laughs> you might be onto something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it does seem to me to be the missing piece that the modern is, that loses is meaning. But it's right. also the more difficult piece. Right. Right. What uh, things things mean. Right. Right. Things mean that uh, it's not just a bird hopping around. It means something. Right. And and uh, we can only hopelessly gesture in the direction of that meaning. God knows the meaning of every bird, every yes. blade of grass exhaustively. And we can only get bits and pieces. But God enables us by his grace, because we bear the image of God, to capture something of it. And that's what art is. I think in your in, in the book, you say precision by imprecision. Right. Which is going to really frustrate a particular turn of mind. Right. Uh, one way of getting at this that I thought was uh, interesting was while I was at Bethlehem College, uh, in my senior year, we got to sort of be privy to some of the ongoing discussions with, uh, with faculty. And there had been a faculty uh, sort of a, just like an in-house uh, I don't imagine the stakes were super high, so that's why I feel fine to share it. But um, disagreement and like papers were being re going back and forth on uh, should we privilege argument over art? Right. And I thought that was a perfect representation of, of what we're getting at. Right. So um, one particular side is arguing um, the, Paul the Pauline letters offer a certain level of precision. Right argumentation and clarity that something like the Psalms do not offer. Correct. Uh, and I don't think they would say that that means any less about the scriptures or anything else, but they would just say humans, uh, we receive something like argumentation far better than, than poetry. Well, we receive argumentation far better when we need an argument. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I was going to ask you, are you, have you seen that going on, or ha have you been privy to discussions similar? Um, yes, uh, I've, I've, um, yeah. It's a per in one sense, it's a perennial um, thing that a certain kind of mind. You know, there's a preacher who will never preach anything that wasn't written by Paul. Sure, right. He's not going to. That's right. That's that's sticking close to the shore. There's uh, syntax you can follow. Him. Right. There's categories of speech. Right. Clarity seems to be very easily received, and nothing and, and nothing against preaching from Paul. Uh, you know, of course you should because that's that's the need of the hour often, right? Okay, um, but to talk about the Psalms and the beauty of the Psalms and the the way they lift you up and the way you they encourage you, it's a different area. It's a so a debate between. Uh, a d debate between them strikes me as having a debate break out in a hardware store over whether we should prefer screwdrivers or hammers. <laughs> <laughs> and and so the answer to the debate is, well, what are you doing? <laughs> right. What are you What are you putting together? Right. Are you building a house? Are you building a stud wall? Or are you uh, putting in electrical outlets? What are you, What are you doing? So. Um, Argument, yeah, you absolutely want argument where you need argument. Sure. But you want encouragement and uplift and, and 
right. in, inspiration where you need encouragement, uplift, and inspiration. It is a particular turn of mind to wonder, um, is it more helpful to you to know God is like a rock right. or um, essentially sovereign overall, like a Colossians text on right. the sovereignty of God? Right. Um, awesome. Uh, last question I have for you is a little bit changing the subject. Uh, and it, it came from, I, I just finished a Robert Frost biography. Okay. And this particular biography was written in response to another biography. Okay. So biography wars. All right. You are an author of at least two biographies that I'm privy to. Right. John Knox and, um, and Bradstreet and Bradstreet. The art of biography seems very interesting. Right. And it, and, um, I think I just thought, well, no, you just told me about it. But what was fascinating about this Frost biography was that apparently the author, the authorized biography of Frost that came out in the sixties was written by someone who a good friend of Robert's and was essentially chosen. I mean, that's the authorized. He was mm -hmm. chosen and it was, he thought, yep, he'll, he'll I trust him. Job, yeah. Um, he did not do a good job. Okay. He wrote this huge tome, three volumes and public opinion soured on Frost very quickly. Right. He's someone obviously who's, I think his reputation is entirely recovered and right. he had the body of work to do so, but it was a fascinating, uh, I suppose I just had never even considered something like that going very, very poorly with someone who was. Um, infinitely sympathetic to him, right? Chosen by him, right? And he wrote in such a way that the public said, "Wow, Robert Frost was a really bad guy." <laughs> <laughs> public opinion and like school teachers and and everything else, they thought like Robert Frost, we're going to put him away. Yeah. Have you ever heard of anything like that? And and how how did you go about writing biographies? Yeah. So the thing that the thing that you have to recognize in writing a biography. Is that uh, the, and I think we I touch on this in the Angels and the Architecture of Art as uh, a covenant representative. Okay. So when you're when you are uh, when you pick when you take a photograph or make a painting or tell a story about someone, you're saying in some way that this is representative of the whole. Okay. okay. So um, so you've. If biography or autobiography were a simple matter of recording what the surveillance cameras caught, <laughs> you know, exhaustively, right. Right. then I would have trouble. I, I couldn't write an autobiography of my own life for the last week. <laughs> right. Right. Because it's the, the, main, um, the main task of the biographer is selection. Right. Um, what is a representative episode? What is a representative comment? What is a representative letter to his wife? What is a representative failing? What is it, you know? Sure. Um, and someone can uh, pick all the wrong representative. They can have the right category, but pick a poor representative of that trait, or they could pick the wrong trait, or you know, th there's all sorts of things that could go wrong. Sure. Right? Um, so in John Knox, um, basically, uh, I, I know if I'm approaching uh, a biography of Knox, I'm approaching it as someone who considers him a great hero of the Ref reform faith and 
as someone whose reputation has been trashed and disparaged by many. So one of my tasks is to cast him in a sympathetic light because I think he's been done wrong by the unsympathetic. Right. Right. With all that in mind. Right. So I, I want to write with that backdrop in mind. So if you're writing a biography of Knox in 1600 in Scotland, where he's the, he's the cultural hero, right. your task is going to be a little bit different. Does, does that take away? So I could almost hear someone listening to you and just thinking, well, can anything be true then? Or, you know, what can we know then? It, it, it almost well, sounds like. Yeah, you can't know everything. <laughs> right. right so that's the whole, that's the whole right. point that's why poetic knowledge is important yes. right because if you if you think that i don't know it unless i know it exhaustively unless i have all the surveillance tape unless i know everything you're saying i can't write a biography unless i become as god and that's the yes, prime yep. that's the primal temptation so i so what i want to do is if i if i were to write a biography of my dad, for example, or if I were to if I were to do something like that, I have responsibility to tell the truth because I'm a Christian. I also have a responsibility to honor my father because I'm a Christian, right? Right. And if someone says, "Where's the dirt, man? Where you know? Where's the where's the negative stories?" Well, no, no, God doesn't God doesn't want us to tell stories in the surveillance tape way right. so so for example um if you compare kings and chronicles um one of them has the Bathsheba story and one of them doesn't right okay and that's a good example of a biographer being uh adjusting according to the uh, uh, according to the goal of the biography now of course god gives us all of scripture so we have the whole story Sure. in the collection of books but uh if we it's possible to have a an honest and conscientious life of david that doesn't have that sure yeah it does seem it, it i didn't think this related really at all i thought it would be a very interesting just last tag but it does seem to fit perfectly with uh this biography particularly of robert frost was like i said three volumes giant biography and it does seem like one of the fundamental things missing was uh, it was replete with facts and encounters and dialogue that, you know, real things that happened without meaning. Mm -hmm. So one of the things, one of the most like notorious misses was him talking about, um, he had mentioned, Frost had mentioned to him once, you know, I would just wanted, I wanted to kill Ezra Pound. You know, I wanted to, I, you know, yeah. and I think in the biography, he's just like, Robert Frost often had murderous thoughts concerning <laughs> Ezra Pound, <laughs> and you know, <laughs> and it was just one of those things. That's 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 not what he means. That's not what he means, right? Anyway, thank right. you, Pastor Wilson. Thank you.